Hi everybody, my name is Nick Beard. I'm the audiovisual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to see you. Great to be with you. Uh, let me ask you a question. How many firstborns in the room? Raise your hand. Awesome. It's awesome. Uh, I am so thankful for you, and I want to say I am also so sorry, because I am the baby, I am the final born in my family, the bombo, as they called me, and uh, my oldest brother had to, he just went through terrible things to, you know, to break the ground for parenting, and that was the case in our family, too. So as my oldest daughter became a teenager, uh, we talked about dating and what have you, and she and I came to this agreement uh, how this is going to work. And, and she bought into this. this well, I'd say it wasn't forced. She may have a different view of it now. But uh, whoever would ask her out, her response would be, oh, you need to talk to my dad. Uh, because I have a commitment with my dad that whoever asks me out has to ask his permission to ask me out. Get it? Okay. So, amen. Awesome. So, um, so you know, and that was an out for her. And, and anyway, so she gets asked out and uh, she says, Dad, someone's going to call you. And, and this is the first time this happened. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, how do I uh, impose on this beast, I mean, teenage boy, uh, my value, and this is a great guy, but my value of who he's taking out. There was a values misalignment. I don't care who you are. He could have been the greatest person in the world. No one loves his daughter like a dad. And so we sat down and I said, um, here's the deal. Uh, at that point, we had four girls. I said, you, uh, God has given me four things that are most valuable things in my life. They're my daughter's. And God has entrusted me with the stewardship over those girls' lives. There will be a day I launch them from our house, my wife and I, and, and they're independent adults, and it's their job to stand before God. But until then, I will stand before God and answer for their lives in these 18 years. And really, you're not asking me for permission to date my daughter. You're asking me to give you, for four hours on one night, hand that stewardship over to you. And I turned to this person, I said, can I trust you with that? And there was silence. <laughs> and then a gulp. And he said, you don't have to worry about me because right now you scare me. <laughs> to which I replied, let's keep it that way. But we don't like things that are misaligned. That certainly brought the values alignment into place, right? I mean, at one point, my teeth were misaligned, and my parents sent me to an orthodontist to bring alignment to my teeth. I didn't do my retainer thing. My bottom teeth are completely misaligned. I'm way too cheap to go back to an orthodontist, but I don't like it, all right? Uh, my back is not aligned, so I go to a chiropractor weekly where I'm pushed and pain is given to me. Why? So I can have alignment. My eyesight this summer was not aligned. And so I went to Costco to the eye care place to find alignment for a prescription that I've yet to get. But the point is, I don't like misalignment. Now, track with me. You don't either, right? It's why when I bought tires for my car, it had a lifetime balancing agreement and rotation because we love alignment. The whole mission of Jesus was to cure a misalignment of the worst kind. I mean, crooked teeth are one thing. A misaligned soul and its trajectory is a whole different matter. 
And so Jesus came to earth to come to people in creation that he loves. You will never look in the eyes of anybody who's not loved by Jesus or God to say this message, you're misaligned. I love you too much not to tell you the truth. And you know what, we know that as human beings. We read our home pages. We see what's on the front page of our home pages. It's why we have locks and why we have passcodes and why we have all that other social ills, all the isms. Why do they exist? Because humans are misaligned. And Jesus came to remedy that. And one of the major things he did to get that message across is tell stories. That's why we're studying them this summer the greatest stories ever told so that you would live into becoming the greatest story ever told. Very formational book in my life uh, by Donald Miller. I put a quote in there from that book, A Thousand Miles in a Million Years. Uh, He talks about living a better story. That's what Jesus wants for each one of us. So we come to a very hard story today, very hard. And at some point today, I promise you, you're going to push back at me. Uh, At some point, you're going to want to email. I've already gotten emails and people aren't listening to what I'm saying. Email this email, jesus at heaven.com. Take it up with him, okay? I'm just the messenger, okay? But the story is to bring liberation and truth, not to punish. And don't hear him yelling this parable. Hear him coming alongside in the most loving way possible, sharing this parable. Some context before we jump in. Now you can see it in your notes or your version app, Luke chapter 16. Look at verse 14 to 15. This is the whole reason Jesus told this parable. You've got to read the scriptures in context. Otherwise, uh, terrible things happen when scriptures are taken out of context. So it's the Pharisees, okay? Those were the religious leaders of the day. They were the spiritual gatekeepers of the religious community, okay? The Pharisees And look at their value. This is where the misalignment was. Not that they were wealthy. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they loved money. Their whole identity was wrapped up in that. They heard all this and they were what? Sneering at Jesus. uh, In the original language, it means to turn your nose up to. To silently mock internally. This is what Jesus faced day in and day out with the religious community of his day. The gatekeepers, if you will, who were to nourish the spiritual community, who were to steward the best news ever brought to humanity, that God is for you, but you're misaligned. They're sneering at God himself, turning their nose up to him. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. Now you're seeing some misalignment between heaven and earth. Here it is in plain sight. What people value highly is what? Detestable. The word means to, um, to give us off a, a disgusting stench. Uh, a friend of mine who's in my men's group on Tuesday morning, I don't know if you remember this, a, a, a rat climbed into his wall and died behind the uh, drywall. And so in the bedroom, he's like, it is foul in there. And they couldn't find the source. Remember that, John? They couldn't find the source of, uh, of the odor. And there was a rotting rat That's the sense here. Do you see the misalignment? These Pharisees are going, I love this. I'm blessed because of this. My identity is in this. And in heaven's eyes, it's disgusting. That's a misalignment. And I just want to say for all of us, okay, just step out of that, regardless of whether you believe in the Bible or not, none of us want our one and only life to be misaligned with heaven. Ever. I mean, we get 60, 70, 80 years here. We have eternity in heaven. And so we never want to be misaligned, okay? 
So uh, one other thing, one other thing I want to share before we jump in context. Where we, so Jesus tells them a story. It's directed to the Pharisees. And by the way, as you're reading the Gospels, whenever you see the Pharisees, uh, put yourself in that picture. Not because we're all hypocritical and what have you, but we are the Pharisees of the day in the sense of we're the keepers of good news. We're the ones that know who God is, that, that have had our eyes awakened to more reality than, than most. And so we've got to identify with these Pharisees. None of us are that bad, I know it, but we have to identify with them here, okay? Uh, there's, there's a man in here named Lazarus. It's the only time Jesus used a personal name in one of his parables, and we'll tell why in a minute, I, reason I think why. Uh, but he's not the main character here. He is just a bit actor in the drama that's going to play out. The main character is the wealthy man, the rich man who never gets a name. Uh, Lazarus doesn't speak, the rich man speaks. He's the main character in this tragedy of epic proportions. So what we're going to do is we're going to follow this rich man in his life, through his death, and into eternity. And we're going to see values misalignment and what that does in life, in death, and in eternity. Are you ready? Okay. Some of you are going, dang, I picked the wrong Sunday to come to church. Um, no, no, you picked the right Sunday. It's a grace fest, okay? There's grace all over this. Here we go. Let's look at their lives. Verse 19, chapter 16 of Luke. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. I, if I had an hour, I would build out all of this. But the whole point, I'll just, I'll just summarize it in two words, excessive opulence, excessive opulence. The point wasn't that he was wealthy because the whole of the Bible teaches that there is righteous wealthy people and unrighteous wealthy people. There are righteous poor and unrighteous poor. The issue isn't his wealth. The issue is the value and the identity he placed on his wealth. And that's what Jesus is trying to get out here. He's opulent. Every day is a party. Every day is a feast. Every day's in luxury. I think of Bernie Madoff. Do you guys remember that guy? I think of as, as, as he um, was uh, arrested and then you learn he's got solid gold toilets and the parties that he threw and what he spent on the parties. Um, the way that he leveraged his extreme wealth at the cost of people, incredibly immoral, but on himself. That's kind of the character that Jesus is building out. But the Pharisees, as they're hearing this, you know what they're saying? Blessed. He's, oh, man, that guy's blessed. Wow, fine linen, Egyptian cotton, purple. Oh, my gosh, blessed. They were the originators of the, what we call today a prosperity gospel, a value system that says the more you have, the more blessed you are. The less you have, the less blessed you are. The more healthy you are, the more blessed you are. The less healthy you are, the, more, or, uh, the less blessed you are, right? And his wealth isn't the issue. His value is the issue. Are we clear? Keep reading. At his gate, he had a compound with a gate, very rare in that day, was laid. That word means to throw. Now, uh, you know, the more you read this parable, and just read it, you don't even need to study it again and again, it explodes with nuance and contrast. It's amazing. Jesus was a master storyteller. So here's a man living in opulence, and here's a poor guy who literally is thrown. The point is, he's, a, he's throwaway. This guy's the center of the city. Lazarus is just not even valued. He's just thrown away like garbage. That's the point. He's dumped. He's tossed. 
a beggar named Lazarus. Now I told you it's the only parable with a name. The name Lazarus means God helps. God helps. And Jesus is giving them, they would know it, a view into his internal mechanism. Yes, he is poor. Yes, he's on the low rung of society. And we're going to see physically he's incredibly disabled. Uh, But God is with him. He's trusting God. That's the whole point. Look at it now. It gets worse. He's covered with sores. Our word ulcer comes from that word. Um, There are lesions on his body that are just oozing out. It's meant to be disgusting. It's meant to have cringe. Is anyone cringing yet? Okay, I can share illustrations. Want pictures? Okay, we're good. Okay. Not only that, he's longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs. Don't think your dogs. We have a great dog, uh, the most amazing, amazing dog. These are feral, uh, rogue, roaming, you know, dogs, okay? Even the dogs came and licked his sores. In other words, dogs treated this guy better than any human in the village. That's the whole point. Now we have in life, these two people, two sets of values, and the Pharisees would say, that man's blessed. Lazarus is cursed. He's getting what he deserves. He must have done something, or his parents did something. Somewhere in his genealogy, something was done to offend God. He's getting what he deserves, okay? So before we leave this section, though, we have to ask, and this is a great question to wrestle with, how do you evaluate people? How do we evaluate people? Uh, Monday night, I drove uh, to Marin County, and I was driving through the city, and I don't know, you're well aware, there is a homeless epidemic in San Francisco. There's, it's all over, right? The housing crisis here. But in San Francisco, it's off the charts. And as I drove by uh, men and women like this, um, you know, as I looked them in the eyes, as I engaged them to the degree I could, one thing I didn't do was think, wow, they're so blessed. I didn't think they were cursed, but I didn't think they were blessed because of my misaligned value system, right? We tend to fall into this. We're so blessed if certain things happen. We're so unblessed if trials happen. How do you evaluate whether someone is blessed or not? You've got to ask yourself that question. Now, let's jump into death, okay? Uh, We know this. It's no surprise. We're all going to die. And as followers of Christ, we should renew our minds with that because actually uh, we believe the best of life happens right now and at our death moment when we enter into eternity and become fully alive. So here we go. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died. At this point, the Pharisees would go, yes, we knew it. The curse is now complete. He's dead. There's no funeral, there's no burial, because poor people didn't get that. Cursed people didn't get that. Do you know, south of the city, there was a ravine called the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Valley, and um, uh, in that ravine, south of it was this place called Gehenna, which was the garbage dump, and the Jews in the day would burn their garbage, and so if this man died in Jerusalem, uh, he would just be thrown onto the garbage dump and burned. People who were crucified were thrown onto the garbage dump. There are 3,000-ish, I'm sorry, 30,000-ish known crucifixions in the Roman Empire. And um, Jesus was far the exception when people advocated for his body and put him in a grave because only cursed people would be thrown into Gehenna and 
people who were crucified were just thrown into Gehenna and were burned alive. So that's what they're thinking. He's cursed, of course. No funeral, nothing. No one even knows he's gone. Good. I don't have to look at that anymore. I don't have to smell that anymore. He's gone. Wow. Then, look at this. Now, here comes the jaw-dropping moment. Every story Jesus told in a parable had a jaw-dropping moment. Here it is. The angels carried him where? Open book test. Where? Wow. So let's go back to the first century. This is Jesus' way not only of saying heaven. Abraham was the hero of the Old Testament. Still is. He is the father of faith. It didn't get any better if you were Jewish than modeling a life after Abraham. Abraham was central to their view of eternity, right, next to God. This poor man dies, and he doesn't get some, like, you know, low-rent real estate in heaven over here. He's brought central to the greatest figure of heaven, and literally it says he is resting in Abraham's chest. Same language used uh, during the Last Supper when the Apostle John leaned over to Jesus and laid on his chest. You got to know someone pretty good. Like, if I did that to you, bro, you'd think I'm creepy if I came and just laid on your chest, right? I I won't do that. We're good. (laughs) Only the most intimate of people are allowed that place. And that's exactly where this beggar ended up. At which point the Pharisees would clench their fists and grit their teeth and go, that guy's a heretic. They had no category for someone cursed like Lazarus someone who had oozing sores, who had a terrible life, ending up in heaven. They had no category whatsoever. But that's where he ends up. The rich man also dies. He's buried. He gets a funeral. And now what happens to him? Does he get reincarnated? Does he get a second chance? Is there some middle place that Jesus is going to teach about where all your wrongs can be worked off till you get good enough for heaven? See, for Jesus to teach that would actually be immoral. Because Jesus came from heaven. Jesus came from eternity. He knows what's out there post-death. He knows what we don't know. And so it would just be plain immoral for him not to teach what he teaches about the glories of heaven and the dangers of life separated from God. He knew this verse in Hebrews chapter 9 just as people are destined to die, how many times? Once. And after that comes what? Judgment. See, it would just be immoral for Jesus, knowing a future event, not to come in love and speak of it. It would just be immoral. And you live that way too. Your future that you know of impacts your present. How many students here? You're about to start school. You know that at one point there's going to be a test. And you know that if the test is coming, you better study because you have a date with destiny. Uh, So my mom is uh, in her 21st year of early onset Alzheimer's. She has tripled her life diagnosis since getting that disease. Um, And that puts me in a special category of a susceptibility medically to that because of her early onset part. Because if I know of that future event, I'm doing things now for brain health because anything I can do to help offset that would be great. We live that way. Now, Jesus 
was the most moral human being, perfect, who ever lived, if he knows of an eternity and a future event in eternity, and he comes to earth and keeps silent about it, that is not moral. That's immoral. And Jesus is not immoral, so he teaches hard, hard things. And so let's just address the elephant in the room. Let's go to the next verse, and then I'm going to take a quick excursus and talk about hell. In Hades, whenever that's taught of in the New Testament, it's taught of as a location, I'm sorry, in the Gospels, the location of the damned. Jesus never taught of believers in Hades. So it's synonymous with hell. In Hades, where he was in torment, literally torment, their unending torment, this rich man looks up and saw Abraham far away in Lazarus by his side. This is the exact opposite of what the Pharisees would have thought. The Pharisees believed in hell. The, the fact that there's a hell was not new news to the Pharisees. In their theology, there's a framework in the Old Testament, clearly, that there's an eternity with God, eternity apart from God. Their values misalignment in the story is who ended up where. And I just want to just take an excursus before we move one step further. And before you push back, let me humbly, gently walk into this. Because some of you right now are going, hell? Did, 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 did he just say hell? This is 2018, isn't it? We're on the peninsula, right? Who is this guy? I will give you the concept of hell is one of the greatest stumbling blocks for Western people to get our mind around. And it's a key objection as I engage with Peninsulites that keeps them from following Jesus. I actually came across some quotes of great figures in history. Let's start. This guy lived in most of our lifetimes. Bertrand Russell, the philosopher atheist. He said, I don't myself feel, by the way, this is in a work that he wrote called Why I'm Not a Christian why I'm not a Christian. He said, I don't myself feel that any person who's really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Uh, Charles Darwin, who grew up believing in God, believing in Christ, in an autobiography, he pointed to the doctrine of hell as a key factor that led him away from belief in Christ. He said this, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, plain language of the text seems to show that men, we'd add women today, who don't believe will be everlastingly punished. And that is a damnable doctrine. Actually, he's a great exegete. He knew what the Bible said, but he just said, hey, clearly teaches that, and that's why I can't follow the Bible. Hell is a hurdle. I get questions all the time like this. How can an all-loving God judge people? Peter, I'm sure you get this all over the world. Isn't hell a bit harsh? Why does God condemn people eternally for what they did in a finite amount of time? Why is it necessary for hell to be a place of torture? Why not just annihilate people? Uh, it's no secret here that I'm a huge fan of the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis. And in his book, The Problem of Pain, he wrote this, there is no doctrine which I would more convincingly remove from Christianity than this. Talking about hell. And you know what, my loving heart, my people-pleasing heart goes, I agree with you, if it lay in my power. And then Lewis says, but it has the full support of Scripture, especially the Lord's own words. I say this humbly 
um, and respectfully, but hell was not a peripheral topic for Jesus. I have not brought it to you often, certainly not to the degree Jesus did. 13% of his teaching, if you look at all the red letter ink in the Bible, 13% dealt with that, right? That's one in six sermons-ish. Almost half the parables dealt with the topic. You want to remove that from your theology? I say this humbly, you got to take Jesus out of your theology too. Because he was so enmeshed in the doctrine. Now, let me quickly say two things. One, I think two things, maybe three, maybe one. He, uh, this. he never taught on it to outsiders. 100% of the time in the Gospels, whenever he taught on this topic, it was always to the religious people. It was not his leading evangelistic line with people in the culture. Love was, because love is much more powerful than fear. The church has messed this up so badly where we lead with fear. I've, I've seen tons of people come to Christ, tons, uh, and uh, almost to a person, not one person who's still walking with God, based their commitment to Christ on fear. They all were drawn by love, right? The reality is that my repulsion, my lack of understanding, even my uneasiness, and I've got it with what Jesus taught, that doesn't prove, I'm going to stop using the word because we have young ears in here. That doesn't prove that eternity that we're talking about is not real. It just proves I'm uneasy with it. I don't like it. And, now everyone, give me your best. It proves I'm a 21st century, privileged, educated Westerner who's viewing the world through my ethnocentric worldview of life on the peninsula. And how could God be a God of judgment? That's my worldview from the peninsula. I remember my first trip uh, to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, it was about five years removed from the worst civil war ever on the continent of Africa. Uh, and I remember walking in and the images in my mind of the graffiti that the rebels had put into buildings made me vomit, almost. I remember listening to stories of incredible atrocity of mothers, and I won't go there, but it was just, it was inhumane. And seeing burns and limbs and this and that that were missing. And then watching those same people on a Sunday worship Jesus with unbelievable passion, solely almost because he's a God of justice. You tell them all people go to heaven, and those people would say, I can't worship a God like that because I have no power, and the only place I can get justice is in heaven's eyes, and I'm trusting God for that. There's a Yale theologian teaches at Yale Divinity. He's Croatian, so he's also grown up in atrocity. His name is Miroslav Volf. And he said this, and I put this quote in your notes, in our notes, because it's so powerful. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis of God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die.
We serve a God of justice. And that justice is displayed in two places, in only two places. It's displayed on the cross, where Christ died for us, where God's wrath was poured out on his son, where the hell I deserved was put on him, and he paid the penalty for me. And that's why we have the grace fest we call Sunday gathering every Sunday to worship that God for those of us who uh, follow Jesus and been forgiven or is displayed in eternity separated from God. Now listen, everybody has got to choose to believe somebody. Uh, Buddhists believe Buddha. Muslims believe Muhammad. Hedonists believe pleasure and put their trust in pleasure. Jesus came, made some bold claims, and turns to you and me in complete dignity and says, believe me. And that's the key to life. Even the hard sayings is the key to life. Uh, in the next three weeks, I'm gonna, I send out a weekly email called the Gmail. And it's called Gary Mail, Gmail. And um, if you want to, I'm going to deal with each objection that I mentioned in the next three weeks in the Gmail. If you don't get my weekly email, just write your email address on a card, put it in the back offering plate, and um, we can talk more. We won't talk. I'll share with you more uh, what we're doing, uh, what, what the Bible teaches. And then you make the choice to believe. But this whole, this whole parable was for Jesus to pull us into a story, turn us around from that world of fiction, look at our lives, and with all the love in him, say to you and me, are you aligned with eternity? Is what you value aligned with eternity? Let's go back to the parable. Let's wrap this up. I'm going to take five more minutes. Okay? We go okay? You don't have a choice. We're going to do it again. Okay, so we have that values misalignment. Now we jump into eternity. So he called to him. The rich man calls to him. Father Abraham, by the way, you cannot build out a theology of eternity apart from God from this parable. Uh, the whole point of the parable is to tell a story, not to teach a theology. So anyone who would teach this and say, oh, people down, I'm using code, people in that eternity can see into heaven, wrong, right? That's just poor hermeneutics, poor way of reading the Bible, okay? So this is all fiction, okay, this whole conversation. Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. Oh my gosh, he's so still self-absorbed, he's barking orders even from eternity separated from God. He's still trying to boss uh, Lazarus around. That's the whole point. I mean, you'd think at that point, he'd be like, I am so sorry. Help, help, help. No. It's, there's not redemption here, right? Verse 25, but Abraham replied, son, and this is the saddest. Oh, I, this is the saddest thing to me. Remember? And don't you know that's going on for every person separated from God? Remember in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted and you're in agony. In other words, what Lazarus was once temporarily, you are eternally now miserable. There's, there's contrast. What you didn't provide for Lazarus when you could have, he can't provide for you now. There's contrast. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. Remember that gate on his compound? 
contrast, reversal. Now the gate is in a whole different realm. It's been set in place so that you, those who want to go from here to you, can't. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. You've reached a point, I say this humbly, but I'm being true to the parable, of no return. Think of the regret, the remorse. Jesus talked about this when he taught in another place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He answered, and I beg you, Father, send Lazarus, he's still barking orders, to my family, for I have five brothers. Let, them, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Of course every person wants that, separated from God. I made the biggest mistake of my one and only life. It was so incredibly skewed and misaligned around what I valued. Warn them. Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, really important here, okay, so stick with me. Moses and the prophets, the first century here was the word of God. They have the word of God, the writings of Moses, the writings of the prophets. He said, uh, I'm sorry, let them listen to them. That's to us. We are the Pharisees. Suddenly, as are the hearer, we are in the best way possible challenged to consider what role does the word of God have in our lives? Now, look at this, verse 30. We're almost done. No, Father Abraham, let that sink in. And let me ask, who dares to say to heaven, you're wrong. With my three-pound brain and 70 years of life, I know much better than you. I say that. Next week, the parable's on forgiveness. We're to forgive. And I say to God, no, 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 you're wrong. You don't know what that person did to me. And so I will not forgive that. God says, I've entrusted you with resources. Give me your first and your best. And for so many years, I said, no, 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 God, 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 wait a second. You didn't really mean that. I'll give you leftovers, but the first and best is spent on me. I want you to love everyone always. No, God, no. I'm not gonna love them. I'm not pointing at you, I do love you. I'm not gonna love them. Because you don't know what they did to me. Gluttony, greed, pride, all my sin when I enter into it willingly, is me saying to heaven exactly what this man's saying from eternity apart from God, no. I know better. And again, we are challenged in the best way possible to consider who are we gonna trust with our one and only life? Who are we gonna believe? Yeah, I don't like it, but that's just an indicator of how I feel about it. What am I gonna do with it? He said, if someone goes from the dead to them, then they'll repent. And Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, this is so poignant, they won't even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. I gotta finish. But let me just ask, does anyone know of something that happened in the Bible in a book called John chapter 11 when Jesus stood in front of a grave? Who did he rise from the dead? Lazarus. 
And if you're taking notes, in John chapter 12, verse 10 to 11, so these Pharisees witnessed a resurrection. In John chapter 12, verse 10 to 11, rather than believing and following Jesus, it sealed his death. It says after that resurrection, they said, now Jesus dies. And then he comes back to life and rises from the grave. And they still don't believe. But the question is, do we? Do we? And what do we do with that? So if you're a follower of Christ, we are the Pharisees. We are challenged in this parable around values alignment. And are our values aligned with heaven? And I'll just answer for you, no. But there's grace for that. But we've been uh, challenged with the truth. And the question is, what are we going to believe? What has the Spirit of God been doing in you as you've sat in this? I don't think there's a better Sunday to have communion than this. Where God says, you know what? You're misaligned and I love you. So live into that conviction. Let's commune and let me bring alignment. Right? And then as we go from here, you're going to be confronted every day with Lazarus. And giving of your time and of your resources. It's why we have such favor in this city. Because we value giving generously and seeking social justice. If you're not a follower of Christ and you're going, man, I am, what hope is there for me? There's a lot of hope for you. And I want to encourage you with one response, one word, yes. Yes, Jesus, that's good news. Like you can forgive me, yes. You can create in me the person you had in mind when you, when you, when you made me in the first place. Yes, there's forgiveness for me. Yes, I want to find my value in you, not in my stuff. I want to encourage you, that's your prayer, yes. And then when we're done here, Beeline it to the information table. We use some resources how to grow in that way. Let's pray. It's the Spirit of God saying to you right now. I want to remind us in Christ, we live in no condemnation status with him. Don't beat yourself up. Live in the truth. Live in grace. Find healing in Christ. Lord, let your love pour over us. Pour out of us. So every Lazarus we come across is validated in our eyes because they're validated in yours. Show us where we're misaligned spiritually align us to your word to the truth because there's life there we want to live Jesus thank you for loving us and never giving up on us or your church we love you and thank you Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We believe you're here for a reason, and we would love to connect with you more. Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We Are PCC.